This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Well, we are in one way, but we still reach out and talk to people and talk to listeners. We're still doing things over Skype and Zoom and they've become like our next best friends. Who would have thought we would know so much about this sort of technology? <laughs> but we do know how to chat with authors. And who would have thought we would chat with so many authors from all around Australia and beyond? Authors that couldn't come into the studio. We've been fortunate in one way. To make programs remotely. And we will be doing so for the next six weeks or so while we're under lockdown. So join in, listen in, read on. The current pandemic has drawn attention to the challenges of teaching a mixed group of children in isolation. But such challenges are not new to Peter O'Brien, who, as a young teacher, faced those circumstances each day. And Peter has recounted those experiences in his book, Bush School. So, Peter, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, it's 1960, and you find yourself teaching in Weabonga in rural New South Wales. Can you just briefly outline for the listener the setting you find yourself in and what was expected of you? Weabonga is a very small village. It was small then and it is even smaller today. It's up on the New England, up in the high country between Tamworth and Walker. So it's quite remote and quite isolated. When I was there in 1960, there were only five homes in the village. I think there are probably four homes in the village today. So it's quite a long way away from anywhere. But what is the significance of such schools to communities like that? They're the absolute vital connection of the district. Without such schools, there is nothing to hold such small isolated communities together. So the schools do more than just teach the children. They're actually an absolutely central pivoting point for the whole of society around that district. But the conditions are actually quite primitive. Your living conditions where you room and board could best be described as medieval. They were third world in the uh, true sense of third world. It was a small weatherboard home which had never been painted with a corrugated iron roof which had never been painted. So the whole building was uh, in a very bad state of repair. There was no running water, there was no sewerage, there was no electricity, there was no power. All of the uh, heating and cooking was done through stoves and fireplaces. Uh, it was very primitive, David. And uh, it was very challenging for me. Now, were the New South Wales Education Department aware of what they were asking of these young teachers going into such places? Uh, yes, I think they were aware. Quite a number of the small schools actually had a teacher's residence that had been built deliberately to house any teacher. Uh, but most of them did not have a teacher's residence and depended, therefore, on some of the local families boarding or putting up the teacher in order for the school to be run. The Education Department was well aware of that. 
In the case of Weabonga, the inspector had warned me that this was his most difficult school to staff. Teachers who had been sent there had resigned and left. So they were very well aware of the difficulties of that small community for any young man that they appointed into it. Now, interestingly, your approach to teaching is to be inclusive. What did you do and how radical was that approach at the time? It was very radical at the time, David. I mean, I was a fairly uh, naive 20-year-old, very green, very inexperienced. But I had in my mind that I wanted the education that the children were to receive was to focus on them to make them the centre of everything that happened in our small one-room school and to make sure that they enjoyed it, found it interesting, were engaged in it. So I wanted to do with those children what was quite radical. At the time, every classroom had ranks of desks which were bolted to the floor so they could not be moved. Typically, they allowed two children to sit side by side and there would be three rows of such desks in a typical school room. To get into that room, the children had to line up outside in the playground before school at recess and at lunchtime and march in in military fashion. Once they were in the room, they had to sit in those fixed desks and never move. They were to do what they were told exactly as they were told and everything was dictated by the curriculum and by a set timetable. It was very regimented, David. So would you call yourself an instinctive teacher in terms of trying to change that dynamic? I think my whole experience uh, from my very early own education in a little convent school with delightful nuns through my family and through all of the things that I observed around me had made me aware that I wanted to focus on individuals. I wanted all of the students to know that I valued them, that they were valuable to me, and that I was interested in what they thought, what they wanted to learn, and how they wanted to go about learning it. So yes, I think there was quite a bit that was instinctual there. You also then provide a glimpse into rural society at the time, the sort of stratification that was there and the nature of the economy. So what sort of society was it? There seemed to be a layering there of different, a sort of hierarchy. Uh, there was definitely in some people's minds, not in mine, David, but certainly in some people's minds. First of all, uh, the village consisted of five homes, five houses. In each of those was a family with children who all came to my school. The men in those five homes were day laborers. They went out each day to work on the surrounding properties, on the sheep properties around in the district. The people who employed them were the graziers. The graziers were certainly much better off than the day laborers. And because they were day laborers, there were times when those people did not have a great deal of income coming in. 
So in terms of finances, there was quite a layering just in that little village. And all of those people in that village and in the district around about it, David, were delightful. They were good, honest, working people, whether they were graziers or village labourers. Further afield, though, in New England, there were social stratifications which I found quite extraordinary coming from the city and never having seen such things before. There were families which were long established and had become wealthy. They had large properties and they were called the squatocracy. Now that was not always a positive term. There were implications in the use of that term that these families had brought from England a sense of being aristocrats, of being better than, of being above others. I found that attitude really difficult to accept and I resisted it and would not allow it to influence my approach to anybody in the area. But the squatocracy and the nabobs, as I call them in my own mind, that is the wealthy business class in the rural towns, were able to organise life in that area to suit themselves. They formed most of the council members in the shire. They were on the boards of all the businesses. They were the large employers. So they had a lot of power, David. And they did believe themselves to be above and better than others. And in fact, I saw them as people who thought they were born to rule. You also refer to the social origins of teachers. Are teachers a strata of their own, so to speak? What do you need to be a teacher? I got a shock when I started Teachers College when I was 17. And in one of the very early lectures that we had at college, the lecturer claimed that male teachers came from the working classes, and that female teachers came from the lowest of the low middle classes. Now, as a young lad, I have never, never thought about class and social class. It had not impacted upon me in the society from which I came at all. Everybody was equal, everybody was the same. So to have a lecturer talking to us about class and that we came from the lower classes was quite a shock. But when I thought about it, I understood that what the lecturer was trying to indicate was that the families from which teachers came then were not professional families. They were not um, managerial families. They were families from the trades or from lower business or from small business or from the helping professions. So there, there was an interesting background to teachers. I'm not too sure that it is the same today, David, at all. Teachers tend to have more of a social conscience, though, don't they? I think they do. It certainly was obvious amongst the young people that I teach are trained with, and obvious amongst many of the teachers that I went on to teach with in the schools where I taught. There were uh, lots of people who had a great sense of social justice one of the better things about teaching, I think. Just to round out this interview then, you had to negotiate your own romantic life from a distance. How was that? Difficult. 
Uh, to go back to 1960, can you imagine not having any communication technology at all, except a phone on the wall that you had to wind a handle to get to work? And then you had to phone the woman who I was interested in romantically, had moved to Melbourne to work in the television industry down there. So she was in the television industry, high tech, in Melbourne, major city. I was in this tiny little village, remote and isolated, with a phone on the wall that I had to ring with a handle to get a connection, and then for long distance. And David, the cost of long distance at that time was extraordinary. It cost me something like six shillings to actually ring down to Melbourne for three minutes three minutes. Six shillings then would be like $30 now. It was very high cost, very difficult but, to do, and I'm trying to run a romance. But ultimately, you were successful. Ultimately, I was successful. Every Saturday morning, I would ring, and I would, during the conversation with my, <laughs> my romantic interest, I would sing a song. That was one of the things that attracted her to me in the first place, David, the fact that I sang Johnny O'Keefe songs. So every Saturday morning I sang a Johnny O'Keefe song. Eventually we decided that we would get married. And after we had made that decision, my fiance, as she was then, said to me, the only reason that I said I'd marry you was to shut you up. The book is Bush School by Peter O'Brien, and as one can attest from listening to the interview, it gives an insight into Australia in the 1960s, into how far we've come, but in many ways, nothing has changed because there is still people grappling with the need to teach a range of abilities in a classroom. So, Peter, thank you very much for talking to us today. The book is Bush School and it's an Alan and Unwin release. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much, David. And now it's my turn. Last week, I spoke with Pip Williams. Her book centred on writing the Oxford Dictionary, but there was another dictionary, Samuel Johnson's Dictionary, and it's this dictionary that is part of the story in Billings' Better Bookshop and Brasserie by Finn J. Ross. Welcome, Finn. Hello, Jen. Now, these two dictionaries, which came first? Uh, Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language preceded the Oxford by about 150 years. It was first published in 1755. The Oxford wasn't actually published in anything other than vesicles until the early 20th century. Well, what made you so interested in all these unusual words? It probably stems from the fact that I run a, a creative writing class and I often look up rare and unusual words for my students and don't tell them what they mean and ask them to give meaning to them or I'll ask them to write them in the context of a short story. I initially was interested in a website called the Frontistory, which is a wonderful archive of rare and unusual words. But when I came to start writing this novel, I wanted to feature an actual dictionary in it, an actual book. And really the only one that had been published before the 1870s was Samuel Johnson's 1755 
dictionary. So that was the one that came to pass and I downloaded the entire dictionary onto my computer. So whenever I wanted a particular word, particularly if I was trying to create something alliterative, I would refer as much as possible to that. So as an author, you've given us a character who also enjoys the use of unusual words. So you'd better tell us who is Fidalia Knight? Fidalia is, she's an orphan, basically. She arrives in Melbourne uh, in 1874, having made the voyage from England with her parents and her mother was pregnant at the time. But she arrives in Melbourne on her own. And so throughout the story, there's the mystery of what happened to her parents aboard the ship. She's a little bit of a Dickensian character, I guess, but I decided, well, I didn't want this poor orphan to arrive in a new country and be desperate like perhaps Oliver Twist was. I wanted her to embrace her new life, even though it was all very unusual and unfamiliar to her. I wanted to, em, her to embrace that and to create a future for herself. So uh, she had to be a strong, resilient character and very, very clever. Uh, so by the time she'd arrived in Australia, she already knew the first volume of the dictionary, which was her only possession, uh, from front to back. She knew every word in it verbatim. So that's how clever she was. At the orphanage, she, oh, the people that ran the orphanage were Edward and Frances Exon. And they were real people. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, quite a few of the characters in the book were real people. So there was, as you say, the Exxons. They had had children of their own die from some scourge earlier on, and they took over the Melbourne Orphanage, which at the time was just in South Melbourne. Uh, so, yes, they were real characters. Also, real-life characters, of course, were uh, Edward Cole, who ran Cole's Cheap Book Arcade, Frederick McCoy, who at the time was curator of the Melbourne Museum, and the fascinating Mary Fortune, who was thought to be Melbourne's first, or perhaps Australia's first ever, female crime fiction author. But unfortunately, in that era, she had to write under a male pseudonym because nobody would have bought her works if they'd known it was a woman writer. So there was a little bit of time during the time frame of my story where not much was known about her whereabouts. So I took a bit of artistic or creative license and brought her back to life and thought, why couldn't she have been an ally to my Fidelia and perhaps skulked around Melbourne in, in men's clothing, you know, attending Parliament and writing stories and covering courts. Well, you did mention Edward Cole previously. So that's fact. Now we're back to the fiction. Billings Better Store and Brasserie was set up in competition and Billings had employed Jasper Godwin. Did he have a thorough knowledge of books, merchandising and shopkeeping? No, Jasper <laughs> was a bit of a bit of a fraud, really. And uh, when young Fidelia first sees him while he's still trying to set up a window display in the bookstore, she realises that he's out of his depth completely, that he doesn't look like he has the vaguest idea of what he's doing. And so she calls him her quandary man. And it does transpire that Jasper's had a whole host of jobs, none of which he was particularly good at or particularly enjoyed. And he didn't want to disappoint his wife, Myrtle, by not doing well at this job. So Fidelia decides to help him. And she did this by copying something Coles actually did. And it's alliterating and advertising. So how about read what she wrote and slipped to Jasper just to inspire him in an idea of what to do 
as a front window display. This, this is chapter A in the book, the first, obviously, of 26 chapters A to Z. So this is what Fidelia wrote. Amelia, audacious, admonished an amateur abyssidarian and absconded with an antediluvian aardvark. After adjourning for an arousing absinthe at Billings Better Bookstore and Cafeteria. Did she absolutely? She did indeed. Billings loved the idea and thought this would make a wonderful display in the window opening the store, but wasn't too sure what an aardvark was. So Jasper was sent to the library and then to the museum where he met Frank McCoy, who you write about. And when this wonderful front window was finally revealed, it was all too much for Fidelia. She collapsed with a fever. Now, who takes this poor orphan in? Up until the day of the opening of Billings Bookstore, Fidelia had been working jobs as a maid for other people and also hiding out at night in Cole's Cheap Book Arcade. But ultimately, Jasper and his wife Myrtle take her in when they find her and they realise fairly early on that she has no other family and so they adopt her as their own. The only thing that Pedalia brings to Jasper and Myrtle's house is the dictionary. And what often happens with a large overused book is the binding needs replacing. So Fidelia is told where the book binder is. But who does she meet there? Yes, so she goes to a Ferris's Printers, which was the government printer, still is the government printer, uh, up in Spring Street. And as luck would have it, she comes across two young boys, one of whom was somebody that she'd met earlier on the ship on the way to Australia. He'd, uh, he'd stowed away on the ship and she only met him briefly then. But they reacquaint, obviously, and she gets to know these two young boys who are both um, three or four years older than her. And despite the fact that they're working at a printer's, neither of them can read terribly well. So she suggests that even though she's younger than them and she's a girl, she's an educated girl and perhaps she could teach them to, to read. Yeah, this, the book printer that she goes to, as you said, was for uh, Parliament and it printed things from train tickets to hand sites. And Fidelia becomes a conscientious reader of the Hansards. She is underwhelmed by the male politicians and what they're doing. So I'm going to get Finross to read from her book, please. Page 190. I will. This is, this is uh, Fidelia's interpretation of <laughs> men and politicians. Hansard also gave her keen insight into the workings of men's minds. They, she decided, were as labyrinthine as the alleys off Cheapside, winding here and there with no clear direction. She had been lost in Cheapside once, had strayed from Mother's side and thought never to see daylight again. She had meandered forlorn and wraith-like over rough, cobbled, muck-filled venels and twittens, despairing of ever finding the comfort of Mother's hands. Yes, men's minds meandered and they too were often muck-filled and cold as as hard cobbles. Men were so full of bluster and froth. A woman saw things in a different, more practical way. So why were their opinions so frowned upon, so anathema to men? It sometimes made Fidelia's blood boil. She was glad that men like Billings and Jasper did not have such poor opinions of women. Parliament needed men like them, men who might deign to give women a voice and see merit in their existence. 
men who would foster and encourage them and not present hurdles to their advancement. Yes. Oh, go Fidelia. Over <laughs> the years that Fidelia grows up, there are many historical events that she witnesses. The running of the Melbourne Cup, the opening of the Melbourne Exhibition Building, and of course, along with Fidelia, we go along with her and have those type of experiences. You must have done a lot of research. The research was very interesting, of course. And I think I stumbled across the opening of the exhibition buildings while I was looking for something else entirely. And because of young Joshua's newfound talent at art and also the fact that Jasper has unlocked his creativity as a, as a sculptor, it was only appropriate that they might end up actually uh, exhibiting at the mm -hmm. Melbourne ex Exhibition. But sometime before that happened, while Pedalia's trying to encourage them to, to, to actually take part, uh, she and Secret and Joshua have a morning jaunt up to see the progress of the building, of the exhibition building. I hope I've sort of shown that in, in the appropriate light as to how it would have appeared, because it was when finished, the largest or the tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere. And though it's well dwarfed today, it must have been fairly gobsmacking, I think, to people in um, 1880 Melbourne. Well, Billings Better Bookstore and Brasserie has such creative happenings that money is made. So we follow the happenings of the characters into other careers, as you mentioned, sculpture, lithography, portraiture, publishing, and even opening a school. But there's also skullduggery. As Fidelia says, good stories are all about emotion, discovery, enlightenment, and most of all, conflict. All stories of worth must have conflict, else there's no nemesis to overcome. And you've given us a Mr Nasty, and it's Mr Fleet. How about reading from page 31, please? Yes, Fidelia has a fairly short stay with the, the Fleet family in Stephen Street in Melbourne. Stephen Street uh, was the original name for Exhibition Street. And Mr Fleet is not at all to her taste. So she says, especially not Mr Fleet. He was an ignoramus, a dolt, a gilly gorpus. She cringed at the thought of him, the smell of him, the look in his eye, lascivious, lecherous, licentious, libidinous, lewd, lustful, lubricious, a myriad of unseemly L adjectives to describe him. Lugubrious too, never a smile, never a good word to say, not to her, not to anybody. She would learn nothing from him but misery. Oh, so there's kidnap, child molesting, drug use and murder. But it's the words that win out. There is a collection of poetry, the Fidelia writes, and a glossary of the most unusual of the words used. Finn, do you have a favourite word? Um, I do rather like calipidious, and it features more than once in the book. Uh, it means, of course, having beautiful buttocks, um, <laughs> specifically Aphrodite's buttocks, but I think any woman's buttocks. And it's just one of those words that fitted the context of part of the story. Uh, as I said, it appears a couple of times and um, it does come up in a scene where there's a little tiny bit of comedy, I think, in the scene that's happening at the time. Well, I think my favourite word is for a blabbering, incoherent child, a blobber lip. 
I like that one. <laughs> yes, well, that's actually one of Fidelia's own words. She coins a few words of her own uh, during the story where there's, you know, where she can't find a word for something or isn't aware of a word for something. She makes one up herself. Another example is, is schnurkel, which is what she figures is what people do when they screw their nose up at a bad smell. <laughs> it says it all, doesn't it? Schnurkel. Yes. Another one is propinquity. Now, I didn't know this one. Finn Ross, tell me, please, what does that mean? Uh, propinquity is another of my favourite words. It, propinquity means kinship or more between people who aren't actually family. Uh, but people who feel like family. Uh, in the context that it's used in the story, it does definitely sum up how Fidelia feels on the way back from a trip to St Kilda when she's travelling with Lucas Billings, the owner of the store, and the two boys that he has by then adopted. Uh, she feels they're her family, even though they're not kin. So using big words may show scholarship but for a young girl in early Melbourne, they lead her into a propinquity in Billings Better Bookstore and Brasserie by Finn J. Ross. Thank you, Finn. Thank you, Jan. A pleasure. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.